chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and then we'll read from Hosea chapter 11 as well. So page 902 in the Church Bibles. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. The next reading is Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. So flick there if you've got a Bible. So Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them, because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adama? How can I make you like Zeboyim? My heart has changed within me. All my com compassion has aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt, trembling like sparrows, from Assyria, fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Do take your seats, and as we say week by week, please have your Bible on your lap, electronically, or in good old-fashioned paper form. Uh, we've been on a journey through the uh, spring term. We're getting to summer. I think summer lasted. It's ended today with rain. It may come back as the covers are pulled off tomorrow at Wimbledon. We'll wait and see. But throughout the spring term through to the summer, we've been looking at the character and attributes and nature of God. There's, there's no more important thing than not knowing about God, but knowing him personally. And God has made that possible in Jesus. That's the claim of the gospel. Of, and that's, what, that's, that's, the, that's the claim of the gospel and the claims of the Bible. We are alienated, we're separated from God because of our rebellion and sin, but God has done all the running, all the initiative, all the planning, and has sent his son to rescue us. But as we've uh, journeyed through God's character, looking at different parts of the Bible, we've looked at his uh, justice, we've looked at his majesty, we've looked at his glorious nature. And today we finally get to the point where we look at his love. What does it mean to say that God is a God of love? We read that from 1 John 4 this morning. And the whole Bible reveals God is a God of love. And you may be in your heart of heart thinking, yes, about time. We've done everything else. When are we going to get to love? Well, it's today. 
And uh, there's no really more important book to look at when it comes to describing briefly, but in a very unique way, the love of God in the book of Hosea. It is a, a rarely turned to book. It is a complex book. It's a beautiful book. And it's a unique book because in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of God comes to the prophet Hosea. And uh, that's not unusual. I'm not going to sing a Tom Jones song. That's not unusual because that uh, phrase starts most prophetic books. A prophet is someone who's given the word of God to take the word of God and speak the word of God to the people of God. That's normally how it works. Very rarely does God's word come and it goes uh, to be shared with not the people of God. Normally God's word comes to God's person, God's man, and it's his job to go and speak to the people of God. It's there in the first sentences of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Obadiah. And Hosea gets the same words. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. But that's where the normal, that's where the continuity stops. Because the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, but where it's about 700 BC, by the way. The word of the Lord comes to Hosea, but then the uniqueness, the horrific, the special, the special words from God comes. Because look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2. The word of the Lord comes to Hosea. Hosea, I want you to be a prophet, but this is what I want you to do. Verse 2, go and marry a prostitute. No, God, I think I'm hearing you wrongly. Let me, let's try that again. I think you misspoke. You couldn't have possibly said that. But that's exactly what God says to Hosea. And that's the whole point of the book of Hosea. In Hosea, God is communicating with his prophet to say, you will not understand my love unless you enact how my people have treated me. You will not be able to accurately communicate my love. You will not be able to know the depth of my love for you and for my wayward people unless you enact exactly what my people have done towards me. That's what's happening from the very first sentence of this wonderful book. Look at uh, the first few sentences again. Verse 3, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea of chapter 1, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Why? Because the land is guilty of the vilest, it's spiritual adultery. People have turned away from God, departing from the Lord. You and I, Hosea, we're going to give ourselves so fully with all our time, resources, our heart. You're going to experience exactly how I've, the love and, and the adultery that my people have not shown me. They've not shown me love, they've shown me adultery. But when you see that, when you grasp it, when you know it, when you feel it, when you sense it, you will be able to more clearly and accurately spread the gospel to my people that so desperately need to hear it. So chapter 1, verse 3, Homer does exactly, rather, Hosea, I knew I'd get that wrong. Homer is the yellow man on the TV. Hosea does exactly what God said he should do, to go and marry Gomer, not Homer. Gomer of Dilblane, this woman who's led by her passions. She's broken many men's hearts. She's like a, a city without walls. She's that type of woman. She's been unfaithful to whoever she's been in a relationship with. And so there's this wake behind her relationally. And God says, go marry that lady. Go and marry Gomer. And immediately she becomes unfaithful. Immediately she uh, kind of bears three children to Homer. We know two of them. Sorry, Hosea. Two of them are probably his. One of them is probably not. Because the last name of the child is Lo-Ami, which means not mine. And by the time you get to chapter 2, Gomer has left Hosea. 
She's wandered off. So chapter 2, verse 5, we read, their mother has played the prostitute. She has said, I will go after my lovers who gave me the bread, the water, the wool and the flax, the oil and the drink. But she did not know it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, her silver and her gold. Gomer left Hosea. She walked across the town and she shacked up with another lover. This uh, para-amor, this lover, does not care for her very well at all. She's left destitute and poor. And so with the love of God burning in his heart, Hosea crosses the town and goes and knocks on her door. And the story behind chapter 2, verse 5, probably says this. I will go and knock on the door of my wife. She's been unfaithful to me. She's born two children to me. I've raised partly one child that was born in our household, but the father was someone else. I will go and love that lady again. I will give her money. So he knocks on the door. And there's a guy there who's expecting a bloody nose. But Hosea gives money out of the generosity of his heart, mirroring the kindness of God to someone who is in a relationship with his wife. The door shuts and uh, Gomer is provided for. But the money comes from Hosea. Finally, we get to chapter 3, verse 2, our passage that uh, was read to us. And the word of God comes again to Hosea. And God says, go, go and love your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. And so what does Hosea do? Hosea goes and buys her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer, that's the correct word, the homer and a lethek of barley. We know from the Old Testament that's about the price of a female slave or a male slave in Israel those days. Behind that sentence is an awful big story, the greatest love story. Here's Gomer, she's left Hosea. She's shacked up with another man who doesn't care for her doesn't provide for her needs, doesn't clothe her, doesn't feed her. Her first husband, Hosea, goes across town and wants to provide for her, even though she has been unfaithful to him. But her new fellow, her new man, decides to uh, pimp her out. And so there she would probably be in the centre of town naked from head to toe, with men bidding on her. She'd be naked so men can see the merchandise. That's probably what's been going on. But as the bartering starts, she hears a familiar voice. And this is why this is the greatest love story ever told. With all the voices from all the men who are looking at her as a piece of meat, Hosea speaks up and says, I will buy her. Behind that is a great deal of meaning. I will buy her. I'll buy her back, the one who's broken my heart. I'll buy her back, the one who's been unfaithful to me. I'll buy her back, the one who's turned her back on me. And so what happens in chapter 3, verse 2? He would have brought back this naked lady with all the shame and degradation, the lowest point of her life. And there's been a lot of low points in Gomer's life. And he puts a veil on her face, covers her nakedness. He wants to give her back her dignity. But how was she feeling? Oh, great. He's brought me back. For a moment, I thought I was safe. What's he going to do to me when the door is shut? Is he going to take out his anger upon me? Will he use his fist not to protect, but to harm me? Is he going to make me a slave in his home? How on earth could he love me again? He's just bought me as a slave. He wants revenge. Not a part of it. Isaiah wants to show his love again, mirroring the love of God to his people. Verse 3 of chapter 3, I don't just want you as a slave. See what he says? I want you to be my wife again. I want to love you again. We belong to each other exclusively. 
no competitors, no other lovers. And here's the bad news. By the time you get to a verse 5 of chapter 3, you're just getting warmed up, and that's the end. You don't know how the story ends. That really is this, the end of these two characters that uh, appear so briefly on the pages of history and on the pages of, Bi- of the Bible. We never know what happens to Hosea. We never know what happens to Goma. And maybe that's the point. But she's been transformed by the love of God in the prophet of God, whose name is Hosea. We don't know if she was melted by his love. We don't know if she was changed or not. But then we turn to chapter 11. And by the time we get to chapter 11, we pick up not with uh, the wife, not with Goma, but we pick up with the children. We see two train tracks of meaning going through chapter 11. We see Hosea's household. We can read it from that lens and perspective. We see God's uh, relationship with his people. We see uh, Hosea's relationship with his wife and children. And we see God's relationship with Israel. They're running parallel. But look at chapter 11. Unsurprisingly, because of what's happened before, the children have messed up their lives. But in chapter 11, we're told how God looks at his people. Israel was my son. I called him out of Egypt. I taught him to walk. I drew him by the arms. And now he turns from me and he doesn't know who has healed him. God is saying, I found this little boy. I nurtured him. I cared for him. I protected him. I bought him his first bike, so to speak. I taught him how to walk. He went from crawling to cruising to his first steps. When he fought, I picked him up. I bestowed my love upon him. I wiped away his tears. I gave him everything. And how has he treated me? When he fell down and cried, I picked him up. I gave him everything, but now he's turned his back on me. He's rejected me. He's turned away. He's on a path to self-destruction now and doesn't listen to a word that falls from my lips. And then you get down to chapter 11, verse 8. It's one of the most amazing sentences in the whole Bible when you understand it. Because here, God is crying. How can I give you up, Ephraim, which is the name of his son? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. The word that's used here is a word that describes your inner workings. It's used twice, I think, in the whole Bible. It shows how God's compassion is not just something that's remote. It's welling up within him towards his wayward son, the son that's turned its back on him, the son who has ignored his loving kindness. And God says, I'm not indifferent to that. I'm not someone who started up the world and then taken a step back. Dawkins was wrong. I'm torn to pieces by the actions of my wayward son. I love him. My heart goes out to him. I'm, I'm torn up on the inside like a storm within me. But look at how he, he responds, verse 9 and 10. I am not going to give you up. I cannot, I will not give you up. Even though you've thrown everything back in my face, even though you've broken my heart, so to speak, I'm going to roar like a lion. You've got the picture of Aslan in your mind's eye. But I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to melt your heart afresh. I'm going to renew you. I'm going to win you back. There's a word there, trembling. I'm going to woo you. It's like a lover would do to a wayward wife. You will return to me because I'm not going to come at you fiercely. My power is going to use to win you back. It's going to be compassion on display. It's God's mercy and his grace. I will make you my lover again. It's there in chapter 2. I will woo you in the wilderness where everything is a distraction in the world. I will take you away. 
and I'm going to take you to a place where there's no distractions and I'm going to speak my words right into your heart. That's in chapter 2. And that's the end of the story. And we're halfway through the sermon. I want to pick out three lessons from this wonderful story that I really, if I could make you sit down at, at lunchtime and read from the beginning to the end of Hosea, I would. It encapsulates the whole Old Testament story and the character of God being a character of love. But what do we show about God's love and character and nature? Here are three things. Let's get to application. I'm going to spend a chunk of time doing that. God's love is sophisticated. Here's point number one. God's love is sophisticated. Children know a lot. Children are brilliant, brilliant receivers of gifts. Adults are not. Adults need to learn that from children. We say, oh, no, you can't. You're too generous. You shouldn't have done. Children just say, yeah, give me more. They're great. (laughs) Their hands are always empty. Our hands are always full. Children are simple. Adults are sophisticated. By that, I do not mean suave and debonair. When an adult loves a child, a child sometimes finds that very hard to understand, let alone a teenager. For a teenager, sometimes the love of your mum and dad is impossible to understand. Here's an example. Why will you not buy me that £40 Xbox game? I need it, says the uh, 12-year-old boy. What the uh, child can't see as they begin their rationale and reasoning with their parents, they begin to throw mud and say, it's £40, I need that game, or my friends have got it. That comes their first clue from debate club. It's not fair because you spend £500 on a refrigerator. Who needs that? This is only £40. That's £500. Let alone a car. Who needs that? Well, you do. That's £10,000 and so on. Children never understand adults' love because it's sophisticated. When it comes to the love of God, it's exactly the same. It's there in gifts, what we think we need rather than what we need. It's there in terms of time. I love the summer holidays. As a child, I didn't like them because I kind of I enjoyed them for two weeks and then I got bored. But as an adult with kids, I love the summer holidays because you get to see your kids. And I do mean that. I'm not just saying it. But to a child, the summer holidays can go on forever. And if you uh, haven't got stuff diarised, they can be times of mischief, shall we say, and exploration and character development. You know what I mean. Time for a child is only a day. How long has it been? You can watch the TV in a minute. Well, how long is a minute? It's been half an hour and so on. Time is not, the time, the sense of duration for a child is not complete. It's an immature understanding of time. For an adult, you get more of a sense. Look, this, this is a really hard week. We've not spoken to each other, husband and wife, but that time will pass. Next week will come unless Jesus returns. It'll be okay. We'll get through it and we'll talk next week. Yeah? That's exactly what we need to understand when we understand the character of God. God's love is sophisticated in terms of what we need versus what we desire and in terms of time. One of the greatest things we need to overcome is our spiritual childlikeness, our spiritual immaturity. When suffering comes, our sense of time immediately shrinks to a day. When it passes, we can look back and see how God has led us through and been with us in the midst of pain and suffering. But when you're in the midst of the storm, it's very hard. And we can think that God doesn't love us. We can think that God has left us. But that's never true. The best advice you can give yourself, but you never will, which is why you need a church, is to say, grow up in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering and pain. We want to grow up. We want a bank understanding of God's character in the good times so that when the storms come, we can trust him even when we can't see him. 
because God is a perfect husband and he's also a loving father and he's also a brilliant chef. You know, God is a brilliant chef. I am not. So yesterday I was making a crumble and I didn't know how to do it very well. And so I asked my eldest daughter to say, how does it work? What do I need? And she told me perfectly. Now, I don't know because I've not tasted it yet if what I've made will taste any good. My previous history of making it when I made a, a crumble for missionaries at seminary was bad because I forgot the sugar and it was really, really bitter. They managed to get their way through it because they're missionaries. They said it was great. It was terrible and they never came around again. But here's the point. When you go to a restaurant, they have certain ways, chefs, to get the right ingredients in the right quantities at the right time. They can use bitter ingredient left by itself, bitter, tasteless, horrible. But when they use it, it tastes great. How do they know how much sweet and sour to put together to make sweet and sour pork? It tastes fantastic. God is just like that. He knows how much sweetness we need. He knows how much um, trials we need to endure so that we see his goodness and sufficiency. He's just like a perfect chef. He's a loving father and he's a great husband. He never burns stuff. He never puts too much heat on beforehand. He always balances the scales. And it shows the sophistication of God's character. The two biblical images are here in Hosea. He's a loving father, chapter 11. He's a loving husband, the whole book of Hosea. There's a multi-dimensionality to the love of God that we need to grasp as we go through the Christian life. It's sophisticated. You may think, how in the world could God allow me to go through this and still love me? Remind yourself of his character. When you feel like that, read the book of Hosea. It won't take you long. God's love is sophisticated. God's love is also, it shows his involvement, the involvement of his love. Look at chapter 11, verse 8. Once again, my heart is overthrown. I'm coming apart inside me because of you. That's an astonishing verse. It shows the uh, interconnection God has with his people. He is not remote. He's not far away. It's not that God doesn't care. God's, I need to speak carefully, God's happiness is intimately linked to his people. It's not dependent on, it's linked to. God is satisfied in himself. He doesn't need us but he's chosen to wed himself to us in a unique and a special way. That's why God had to make Hosea marry Goma. What do I mean? Imagine you have a friend who's really, really quite needy. And that friend calls you up on the first night, on Monday night at 2 a.m. in the morning. You take the call, bleary-eyed, you go back to bed. It was a long phone call. There's some things you need to do the next day. They ring the next morning, Tuesday morning now at 2 a.m., bang on the same time. You're bleary-eyed, you're weary, you saw the number pop up, you know who it is, but you take the call again. By the time it comes to the third time, what will you be tempted to do? That answering machine is very, very appealing. I don't need to take that call. They can wait to the morning. God never does that. The reason God said to Hosea, you must marry Gomer, is because it's not just a friendship relationship with God has to us. He's intimately wedded to his people. There's a sophistication to his love and there's an intimacy, a closeness to his love. When you're married to someone, their sadness is yours, their wounds become your wounds, their joys are your joys, their tears are your tears. And God says, unless you marry someone who's completely broken, whose life is a train wreck, 
who's got a trail of relationships behind them, unless you marry someone like that, you will not grasp or understand the depth of my love for my people. And what's so fascinating and amazing is that here is the God who has the universe in his hand. The end of Job says, the oceans are just a a droplet. The storehouses of heaven, of snow are his. And yet he's chosen to wed himself to his people in a most intimate way. His joy is bound up with our joy. God has become vulnerable to his people. And we just look at the cross to see that. He rejoices over us with singing, says Zephaniah. And so how do you respond to the the sophistication and the the closeness of the love of God? That must mean that when your friend does call at 2am, you take the call. If you grasp the depth and the love of the furnace that is in the Godhead, we cannot be unchanged people. If we are, we've not grasped the gospel. We cannot say, actually, nice people welcome, people who are hard to love, people who have baggage in their life, people whose week has been a mess, let alone their life, you're not welcome. May we never say that. Love is costly. You make yourself vulnerable. You make yourself committed. You make yourself open to being disappointed and broken. When you start to live a little bit like that, living costly love, that means you understand the gospel. Because that's how God loves us. God's love is sophisticated, is intimately involved. And it's incredibly costly, thirdly. God's love is costly. There are a few ways that you can show love to friends. There are two inexpensive ways, and there's a really costly way. Here's an inexpensive way to show love. You just get alongside someone that you know. You support that person and you compromise the truth. You never mention to them. You never cross their will. You never mention the gospel to them if they're not Christians. You just support the person. You just affirm every bad decision they make. Here's another inexpensive way. You just quit on the person. You walk away when, you, when loving someone is too hard, when it's too costly, when it's too inconvenient. You walk away from that relationship. That's a, an inexpensive way to love as well. You just condemn the person. You say, I've had it. You throw your toys out the pram and you march out of the relationship never to see them again. You can either completely accept someone or completely reject them. Look at how Hosea is called to love Gomer. Chapter 3, verse 2. He bought her. Hosea goes to his wayward wife, there in her nakedness, there in the marketplace, and he buys her back and brings her back home. Behind that is a huge image of Jesus. Jesus in the garden, Jesus on the night before the cross, Jesus on the very evening that he's betrayed. God's plan of salvation, sending his son to buy back away with people. It's all there in that sentence, if you listen carefully enough. Is there any other way for me to rescue my people? And the father says, no, there's no other way. You've got to pay the the cost. You've got to bear the cost. The New Testament says this, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. I love you with a never stopping, always and forever, never ending love. I don't bring you back into a relationship with me so you can just serve me, so you can stay at a distance. I've bought you back because I want to know an intimacy with me that you long for, that you'll never find anywhere else. It's an intimacy that you are made for and to enjoy. If you live that costly love, If you know the love of God in your heart, 
It does not mean that people's lives that you come in contact with, it will not mean their heart will always melt. It won't mean that life will always be easy. That it won't always be a happy ending. But if you love as Hosea loved, the way God loves us in a costly way, you will be a prophet. You will be prophet-like with a small p. No one will write a book about you, or they shouldn't do. All the prophets have ended. But you get the point. When you see the love of God, it melts your heart. When you see the depth and length and breadth of the love of God, you can then love other people with those resources. Because that was you up there, Jesus put clothes on. That was you and your spiritual adultery and nakedness. That was you and your uh, running away from your father. But Jesus pursues you and clothes you. That was you up there. He gently led away and said in the quiet place of your own heart, I'm never, ever going to call you a servant. I want you to be my friend. I want to adopt you. You can be my family. And the more you let that sink into your heart, the softer your heart will be. That love, the same love that forms the foundation of the world, that love can make your little heart into a great heart that mirrors the love of the greatest heart, the heart of God. Let's pray together.